Well, let's see, I have this up there. Check one, two. All right. Well, I, uh, Brother Bob Collins is out of town today, and so I had the privilege of preaching in the teen class this morning, and that, that went over like a lead balloon. So, <clears throat> well, I just thought it fit, being that it's Pride Month, that we should read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, <clears throat> so I uh, read that, printed that out for everybody, and some did not appreciate it as much as I, I did. So, can you hear me all right? More? Okay. All right. Did you come to church tonight to leave different than you came? Right? We come to church oftentimes and we like we walk out the door the same way we walk in. Right? We would criticize maybe other churches that you know that they kind of uh, that's the way they operate, right? Come as you are, leave as you came. Right? We would say that. Hopefully we come to church and we leave different than we came. Right? That we, our lives are adjusted or changed to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And um, so that being the case, right, if, we come, if we come with that, that idea, that thought, are we willing to change your life, our life to what God wants us to do, right? We come, we sit in church, the word of God is preached. Do we come with the precedent, with the idea, with the thought, with the foreknowledge of, I'm going to go to church to see what area God would like me to change in, right? What I need to take away, what I need to add to, right? It's easy to come to church and sit there, stand up, be quiet when we're supposed to, sing when we're supposed to, bow our heads when we're supposed to, and basically all that was changed, only impression made is what was left in the seat by us, right? So are we committed to change our thinking, our actions to be more like Christ when we come to church? If you answer yes, then I hope you mean it, right? It's easy to say, it's easy to think it. We uh, know, all know of camps. Maybe we've all been at camps in times where, uh, or those type of things, services where uh, great, we, we felt great change. We felt God lead us to do something, whatever it may be, take something away, add something, and then we really didn't do it, right? And the decision was made, but no change was made. If you answer no, then we need to question why we're here, right? Obviously, we're here to assemble. The Bible tells us to be here. Uh, it tells us to come to church. But if we're going to just come and, and not have any effect, not have any change in our lives, then why are we here? So I hope you think about those things tonight and ask God, tell the Father that you surrender to him. Tell him you surrender to his desires. I was saying the song, I surrender all. Is that just words we say? Or is it something we're truly willing to do? Is really all surrendered or is it just a nice old song that, we like to sing. The, that was the invitation song at First Baptist Church of Hammond every service as a kid. And Pastor Joel fitly did the bass part there. I surrender all, right? And it became mundane. mundane. And it just kind of like the choir would sing it. Every invitation. Every invitation that song would be sung. And occasionally, uh, the pastor would change that song. And it was you know more impactful because that's the song we always heard for invitation. But the song says a big truth, right? I surrender all. Right? I surrender some, I surrender a little bit, I surrender all, everything. At any age, at any place in life, any occupation, every, every, anything, I surrender all. All the good, all the bad. That's what the song says, that's what we just sang. Did we mean those words tonight? We'll pray and then um, we'll take our Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the great day you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truths of it. I pray this uh, message would speak to hearts. Lord, pray it speak to my heart. May uh, the Holy Spirit work tonight in each and every one of our hearts. May we may reveal sin in our life. May we confess it. May we repent of it. May we 
forsake it. May we leave different than we came in tonight. Father, I pray you do a great work this evening in this church. May it have a great effect beyond just tonight. Maybe in individuals, maybe in the church as a whole, maybe in this area, I don't know. Lord, we don't want to limit what you want to do. May we get ourselves out of the way. And may we allow you to work through us, work in us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 7, a familiar passage. Should have turned there first. That's all right. Gives you more time to get there. <clears throat> Second Chronicles chapter number seven. Verse number 12. We'll start and we'll read through verse 22. Verse number 12. Let's read responsively. I'll read verse 12. We'll read verse 13 together and so on and so forth. Those are my son is, are in my Sunday school class are accustomed to this. Great. They did a great job reading this morning. Sometime, you know, Sunday morning. People kind of getting drug in there. A couple people don't have their Bibles, and it's usually like, I read the verse, then it's like, next verse, you know. This morning was great, very solid reading this morning. All right, there, Second Chronicles chapter 7. It says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people... If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal, heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And as for thee, if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, and do according to all that I have commanded thee, and shalt observe my statutes and my judgments, then will I establish the throne of thy kingdom, according as I have covenanted with thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man to be ruler in Israel. But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I pluck them up by the roots out of the, my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight and make it to be a proverb and a byword among all nations. And this house, which is high, shall be an astonishment to every one that passeth by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and unto this house? Let's read verse 22 together. And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them and served them, therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. And unfortunately, we know the end of this story to some extent, and kind of what God says is going to happen if they forsake him happened, right? But our text verse, the most familiar verse probably in the passage, verse number 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and will heal their land. I remember when uh, President Trump was running uh, quite a span back, and I, maybe it was around COVID, I don't know exactly what it was, but uh, Vice President at the time, Pence, you know, came out with this video and kind of was quoting this verse, and this is a highly quoted verse. There's a part in it, though, that usually gets left out, right? My people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. There's a part oftentimes we miss there. We're fine with humility sometimes. We're fine with prayer sometimes. Forsaking sin, that's a little bit of a different story. Just to give some context, because this verse is taken out of context very often, all right? Very often. But the temple has just been built by Solomon, right? Solomon's temple. Right? David couldn't build it. Solomon built it. God appears to him to tell Solomon that he will indwell this place. God's spirit's going to come, be in this temple, right? So we have the tabernacle up until this point. We have the temple come, and God's going to dwell in this temple that Solomon had built. God tells Solomon that the people forsake him. He will send pestilence. He will send plagues to the land, right? Locusts, all these things. But that happens. God's people will humble themselves, pray, seek God's face, and turn from their wicked ways. God will forgive their sin and heal the land, right? Reverse those things. So who is this to, right? That's, that's the... That's what context is about, right? Who, who is this verse to? Who is this passage to? Well, it's to Solomon. It's a promise made to him and to the children of Israel, right? My people. If my people, right? Speaking of the children of Israel, my people, which are called by my name, right? Uh, the children of Israel, the children of Jehovah, of Yahweh, right? God's people. Who is this not to, right? This passage is in no way referencing the United States of America, right? This is not uh, speaking, the, the land that is being healed is not the USA in this context at all, right? Uh, America has never been and never will be God's people, like Israel is God's people, right? They are God's chosen people, right? Abraham was chosen to send the line, like promises were given to Abraham, his seed, right? That they would bless the nations, that uh, the, the Messiah would come through them, right? All these promises given to them, and this promise is specifically given to my people, speaking of God's people, the children of Israel. And so there's a song, you know, Lord, heal our land, uh, Father, heal our land, you know, forgive our sins and, and heal our broken land. That's not, the con- this is not who that this verse is speaking to. This is speaking to God's people. Speaking to the children of Israel. The promise is to God's people, not to a country, not to America, not to a, a, a country, a nation, other than the children of Israel, which are who? God's people. That are what? Called by his name. I believe there's a practical application, though, and an admonition for us today in this passage. Although this is not to Americans, this is to Christians, right? God's people. Who are we called? We're called Christians. We're literally called by Christ's name. And Christ, the same God that gave this command to Solomon, that went to him in a dream and gave him this thing that appeared to him, that is Jesus Christ, right? That is the huge difference between us and all religions. Is Who do you call that man that lived 33 years, died on a cross, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven? Because if he's just a prophet to you, if he's just another man, then we don't have the same religion. We don't have the same line of thinking. Because that man is our God, right? That man is our God incarnate, right? So if you think anything other than that about that man, Jesus Christ, that's who we worship. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved, right? Every knee will bow one day at the name of Jesus Christ. And we are his. And so I think we find in this verse maybe an equation or a process or a formula, if you will, and I hate to synthesize it down to something like that, but if you will, a formula, an equation for what revival looks like. How do we attain revival? How do we get this process going? And it gives gives us this process here. Number one, it's humility. Humility. Number two, it's prayer. And number three, forsaking sin or repentance, right? Turning from our sin. So why don't we see revival happening in our church, churches, our country as a whole, maybe? Because one or more of these areas are lacking, not with America, not with worldly people, not with sinners, but with God's people. God's people. 
revival is a little misleading in what it actually is, right? We think revival, it's revival something that is dead, right? If somebody dies, and you give them CPR, and you revive them. They were once dead, and now they are alive. And although that's what it is, really revival, when it comes down to it, is more of dying to ourself, to the things in our life, and the Holy Spirit becoming alive in us, right? We see this in Paul's writings, right? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but what? Who lives? Christ that liveth in me. Uh, Paul says, I die daily. Jesus says, take up your cross, right? A form of death, a, a crucifixion, a, a, a thing, a, a device of killing, right? Take up the cross and follow me. We're going to die to the flesh. Sometimes we say revival, like, I, I want to be revived. No, we really just, we need to be dead to some things. And the Holy Spirit revived in us and living in and through us. Number one, humility. This is death to pride. Humility is death to pride. Unfortunately, we are a very proud people in the United States of America. I know we're singing the song, I'm proud to be an American, right? It's a good song. I love the song. We're practicing in choir. It's going to be great July 4th. I just ruined it for everybody. No surprise now. But anyways, right? It's a good song. I wanted to, I wanted to sing it. But as a whole, in a wrong way, we are very proud as a nation. I was telling uh, somebody this morning, I forget who, maybe uh, Tyler uh, Richardson. I said, there's, there's, there's certain like days of the year that you just you really want to preach, right? Easter Sunday is just like one of those days. Easter, right? You want to preach on Easter. You want to preach on Christmas. And I'll say Pride Month is one of those months that you want to preach around because there's a lot of content. And here we are. Pride Month of all things. What a disgrace. Our nation has become proud of the most grotesque of sins. We're proud of immorality. We're proud of homosexuality. We, we look at a man like Donald Trump and we, prior to him running for president, all his... All his womanizing, if you will, most of the world would have applauded that and said, yeah, you get him. Good job, buddy. And, and, and we, the, the immorality, the unfaithfulness, the divorces, I know we as Christians don't look at it like that, but the world does right? oftentimes. Homosexuality, we're proud of. We have a whole month in our nation committed to the pride of sodomy, of LGBTQ plus STD, right? All those things. <laughs> it's a ridiculous thing. We're proud of that. We're proud of this transgenderism. We're proud of drinking. Wow, how the liquor flows in our nation. How the booze flows in our nation. I was reading a book about Billy Sunday and it's great efforts he made. Now, it's not necessarily about this, but it's about Billy Sunday. But I'm saying he made great efforts to get uh, alcohol taken away, right? To, an amendment made to get that taken away. And unfortunately, that reversed. And uh, you can't legislate morality, unfortunately. But nevertheless, liquor, alcohol, right? it's called spirits. Another word for it. Flows in our nation. And we're proud of it. Every major sports industry is financed by it. You can't barely go anywhere. It used to be back in the day, people wouldn't go to restaurants that don't serve alcohol. That is few and far between. Everybody drinks. Cracker Barrel, you want to drink it? We go, you want to go get slammed at breakfast time? You can go get slammed at breakfast time. And it's a disgrace to our nation. It is a scourge to our nation. Abortion, slavery, and alcohol have been the scourges of our nation. Unfortunately, alcohol is the scourge of the world. Intoxicating people, ruining their lives. It's a travesty. And here we are, proud of it. We're proud of baby murdering. I was talking this morning to some teenagers after uh, my message, and they were calling me homophobic. They were calling me homophobic, but nevertheless. Um, but she said, I, I said, is it okay to kill? Or rather, is it okay to murder? Right? Killing? 
It's different than murder. Murder is killing somebody who's innocent. And this is what we do. The most innocent of people in our society. We murder them. And this is paraded around. This is given out as a right. And that's how it's flaunted. The right to kill your child. What in the world? It's health care. No, it's murder. Somebody dies. It's not health care. What's healthy about killing somebody? Nothing. Oh, it's ridiculous. And here we are, proud of it. Proud of it as a nation. Very proud people. We live above the rest of the world, look down from our houses, our lack of credit, our bank accounts, our overwhelming food supply. We eat what we want, when we want, however much we want. Our two to four cars in the driveway. And the luxuries of being an American while children die of starvation and dehydration. We refuse to get our hands dirty in real issues, hoping that maybe some politician who says the right words and claims to be a Christian. But yet when it comes down to abortion actually being on the table legally, they say, well, that's a little extreme. And we put our faith in those people to fix the problems in our cities and in our nation. Oh, for the arrogance of America to be humbled. Number one on the list God gives us says, if my people, they're going through problems, there's pestilence in the land, humble yourselves, number one. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Humility, God hates pride. But wait, this verse isn't to America, is it? This verse is to God's people. This is for Christians. Oh, how we struggle with pride. We can look and get upset at Pride Month. We can amen homosexuality and, and how it's a disgrace. But do we introspect at all? The pride in our life? How arrogant we can become? Maybe how arrogant we are <laughs> at times? Or times than we maybe be willing to admit? Do not all of our sins stem and root in this very thing? Pride? Sometimes we, we look at arrogant people and we, they're the only proud people when there's like people on the other spectrum and like very, 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 like won't speak to you, right? They're both manifestations of the same thing. Pride. Why do we sin? Because we want something. Covetousness, right? What's covetousness rooted in? Pride. Because we want something and maybe we shouldn't have it, but we want it. Why do we lie? Because we're proud. Why do we steal? Because we're proud. Why do we kill? Because we're proud. Why do we commit adultery? Why do we lust? Because of pride. Does God not care more about his children who have been redeemed from hell by Jesus and his merit alone and none of their own? And yet here we are, filled with pride, filled with boasting. What, is, what does Ephesians 2 say? Lest any man should what? Boast. And yet we live lives filled oftentimes with pride. We do what we want, when we want, how we want. And we play the, the Christian game sometimes to condone those things. But in our hearts, we're full of pride. Do we not boast ourselves oftentimes of being the best of the Christian sect, of the Christian variety? We look down on our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as if we are so much better in our conservative ways. Oh, what a shame to be proud in the sense that we look down on others, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ and maybe look a little different than we do, do things a little different than we do, and maybe we don't agree with them. But we think, I am superior. You know who that sounds like? 
There's a group called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes who looked at, oh, that I'm not like this publican. Oh, that I'm not like this sinner. Oh, may we not be like that. Humble yourselves. These things the Lord hates, right? Seven, six things, an abomination. Seven, abomination rather. A proud look, number one on the list. Why does revival tarry? Why do we not see growth? Why do we not see revival in our lives, in our churches? Why doesn't God do a great work? Number one, because we lack humility. We need to give death. We need to usher death to our pride and give life to humility. And I'm running out of time quick. Number two, prayer. Death to my will. We have death to pride and prayer Death to my will, death to my time, death to my, death to my desires. What is, the, what is in the Lord's prayer, right? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think, I think it was said a while back, it said, so often we're trying to have our will done in heaven when the prayer is to have God's will done on earth. Prayer has become a joke in America. Wicked people will say, you know, here, we, let's try, just try, travesties, tragedies will happen and we'll hear our pagan politicians get up and say our thoughts and prayers are with these people as if they think that's going to do something. These wicked people. Got Nancy Pelosi, our thoughts and prayers. You're on your way to hell. You're not praying to God. <laughs> like, it's a joke. It's ridiculous. Our thoughts and prayers. It's a byword in our nation. It's a joke. The term has become a word of condolence. Oh, we're praying for you. Wicked people. We're praying for you. I sure hope they're not praying for me. Goodness gracious. Like, man, who are they praying to? It's become a word of condolence and not a word of action. It has been demonized and ripped out of our schools and has been labeled as radical and has been commandeered by Islam and other religions, Buddhism, Hinduism. Prayer is something that pagan Catholics do to their false god. Prayer finds little place in our land, right? It, it, the... the in the passage of the Lord's Prayer, it says, like, don't, don't like, say things over and over again. Right? They, they think they're going to be, don't be as the pagan do, because they think they will be heard for their much speaking. And here the Catholics are repeating the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again, thinking they're going to be heard for their much speaking. But this is what prayer has been created. This is how it is viewed in our land, in America. But wait. There's the offering plate. But wait. This passage is not to Americans. This passage is to Christians. This passage is to God's people. So what place does prayer have in your life? God is not so concerned with the prayer life of the wicked people, of the wicked people of this nation or of the world or of sinners. He's not so concerned about their prayer life. He's concerned about your prayer life. He's concerned about my prayer life. So what does that look like? Because when God says, if we humble ourselves and pray, he's not speaking to the world. He's not speaking to the United States of America. He's not speaking to China. He's not speaking to Europe. He is speaking to his people, the followers of him. If we're honest, Vladimir Putin prayed as much as some of us did this week. LeBron James, Blake Shelton, Kenny Chesney, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, King Charles, Xi Jinping, and a whole host of other wicked people prayed as much as some of us did this week. What a travesty. If we're honest, millions of Muslims and Catholics and Buddhists and Hindus prayed to their false gods with much more, with much more fervor and with much more intenseness and with much more loyalty than we did to our God this week. You know, the God that we claim to say that he is the creator and he created 
all things. All those other gods are false. All those people are in false religions. And yet they find time to religiously pray to their false god, to the god that will not hear them, their god like Dagon that may as well fall flat on his face. And they take the time to worship that god and pray to that god and be sincere to that god. Gods that they even have made with their own hands. Our God's the creator. They created their gods. Our God created us. And we don't pray. We have a God who commands us to pray, wants us to pray, will actually hear us. What, a, what an idea. Will actually hear us when we pray. Will actually move when we pray. Prayer is the most powerful thing ever to exist because it moves the hand of God. God changes things. God does things when people pray. And yet we don't. And we dead sure don't pray like other religions. We sometimes look at them as radical. It's crazy that the Muslims would take time out of their day, take time out of certain parts of the year to make sure they're facing Mecca, to get down, and honestly just are very devout with it. And it's embarrassing that they're praying to a false God. And here we are with God Almighty. And we pray for our meal. We whisper a little prayer here. We tell people we pray for them. <laughs> We're a joke oftentimes. What are we doing? We've been given the great access to the greatest thing that's ever been given to man. Prayer. Relationship with God, access to God, the creator, the all-powerful, the omniscient, the omnipresent. And we squander it. The only things the early church was given for the most part was the Holy Spirit and prayer. The Bible wasn't finished being written until about 90 AD. John finished it up with Revelation and John. Didn't have great access to the Bible. Having access to the scripture like we do is a new thing. People had to go to synagogue to have the Bible read to them. They had to borrow scrolls. They had to make copies for themselves. Right? When these letters were sent abroad, many copies were made because people were getting a letter from Paul, getting a letter from Peter, getting a letter from John, getting one of the Gospels in, 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 in as much time as they could, writing down what they could so they could take it home. Even across our nation, or across the world, rather, there's countries that don't have access to the Bible like we have. But you know what God said he would send? He would send the Holy Spirit. And what he gave us? He gave us prayer. That's what we need in our Christian life. And I'm not trying to downplay the scripture in any way. But we have declined these other things. We, 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 we elevate. Knowledge puffeth up, 1 Corinthians 13 says. And we, we, we get enamored with our knowledge of the Scripture. It's good to have a knowledge of the Scripture. But it is nothing if we do not pray. Christians went to the stake and burned. Christians were thrown to lions and were eaten alive. Persecution happened. Well before the Bible was in mass circulation like it is today. Well before the common man had a Bible in their tongue. And they died and were persecuted for the cause of Christ. You know what they had? They had prayer and they had belief in a God that would move and do things because of their prayers. And we don't access it. Prayer influences God greatly. Enoch prayed, Abraham prayed, Jacob prayed, Moses prayed, Samuel prayed, David prayed, Solomon prayed, Elijah prayed, Elisha prayed, the other prophets were men of prayer, the apostle John prayed, Paul prayed, Peter prayed, the early church was full of prayer, the pastors of the early church were like, hey, can they get some men to take care of these widows, because we need to pray more. And Jesus prayed. There's never been a great Christian, a great man, a great woman used of God that has not been a great man or woman of prayer, period. 
period. Anybody we look at that is not a person of prayer that does quote-unquote great things in human eyes, they're doing that in the power of their own flesh. And in God's eyes, it is not great. The only great things that are done in God's eyes are those that have come out of prayer. Prayer is the catalyst of Christianity. Read the Bible, go to church, praise God, essential, important things, but we must not forsake prayer. I'm too busy for prayer. You're too busy not to pray. We have such busy lives. We have so many things going on that Satan has taken our lives and filled our schedule so much to forsake the biggest thing we've ever had, prayer. We set, no time, we set no time aside for it. We put no value in it. We get in the prayer closet and we just read a list. Like that's gonna just, we read somebody's name with no fervency, with no intenseness. The greatest thing we've been given and we just partake in it here and there. God moves when men pray. Enoch prayed and was taken to heaven. Abraham prayed and was the friend of God. Jacob prayed and God changed his name to Israel. Moses prayed and God didn't annihilate Israel. An amazing story of a man standing between God and man and saying, Father, don't kill these people. Take my life instead. Praying on behalf of his people. Do we pray on behalf of our people, of our church, of our area, of our country? Do we get on our knees and plead before God Almighty and ask him to forgive our sins as a nation? Our sins are the sins of our people. David prayed and killed a giant. Solomon prayed and became the wisest man ever. Elijah prayed and it stopped raining. He prayed again and it started again. Jonah prayed and a fish threw up and an entire city gets saved. John prayed and God gave him the book of Revelation. Paul prayed and wrote most of the New Testament. Peter prayed and preached Pentecost. God moved men of prayer like D.L. Moody, R.A. Torrey, Ian Bounds, David Brainerd, John R. Rice, Jack Hiles, and many more. God moves when men pray. Jesus prayed. If anybody did not need to pray. And yet we see Jesus over and over and over as if he truly needed it because he realized that he did. And he wanted to. What's the first thing we see him doing in his ministry? Going into the wilderness to what? To pray. Every time we see him getting away from the crowd, making a priority of prayer. Yes, Jesus went to the synagogue and read the Bible. Yes, Jesus went to the synagogue. Yes, he observed Sabbath. Yes, he observed all the law. But he took time to pray. When he's going to go to the cross, what is he doing? What is the thing he is so passionate about? The thing he is so urgent about? The thing he is spreading great drops of blood whilst doing? Praying. But the, the greatest example we have of a prayer is Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed and overcame the enticement of the devil. Jesus prayed and healed thousands. Jesus prayed and fed thousands. Jesus prayed and received the strength to bear the load of sin on the cross. Jesus prayed and became sin for us. Jesus prayed and gave his life for us on the cross. Father, into my hands, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We must Pray. The greatest weapon we have against Satan is prayer. The greatest thing you can do for your family is pray. The greatest thing you can do for your church is pray. The greatest thing you can do for your country is pray. More can be done. Listen to me. Listen to me. More can be done in the prayer closet of a few faithful Christians than has ever been done on the battlefields of war. I know that seems contrary. That seems maybe you don't like that, but it is a reality. And I'm not against anything. I'm not against soldiers. I'm so thankful for the blood of the soldiers that died for our land and gave up their time and their families and all these things. Those that died and those that did not gave great sacrifices. And many would be willing to give their life 
to pay the greatest cost and give their life for their country. And few, unfortunately, are willing to pray the price and give a few hours for their country. We'd say we'd be willing to give our lives and go die for that flag and raise it up as a standard. And yet we would not even pray for our country fervently. What are we doing? We want to see great change in our churches. We want to see great change in our nation. We want to see great change in Lynn County. We want to see great change in Iowa. And we would die gladly for our nation, but we will not pray gladly for our nation. What is greater, your, your service in a uniform with a gun or your service before God Almighty who can change more than you and I can change? Why are so few willing to pray the price? Our country was not founded on military might, on atomic weapons, on nuclear weapons, on drones or tanks or soldiers. Our country was founded upon men of prayer pleading to the Almighty for freedom from tyranny. The great awakenings weren't started by soul winning efforts. The revivals of pastime weren't sparked by Bible studies. Prayer is the thing that created our land. Prayer is the thing that shook the continents for God. Prayer is the thing that caused great revivals in Europe. Prayer. Prayer. The song uh, Andy O'Neill wrote, what must he do? What will it take for his children to learn to pray? There's power unexplainable, so easily attainable. If we would just learn to pray, and this sermon is just as much for me, if not more than you. We would learn to pray. Goodness gracious. Humility, prayer. Number three, repentance. Death to sin. Death to sin. Death to pride. Death to our will, our way. And thirdly, repentance. Death to sin. <sighs> Wicked country we live in. Crime is on the rise. Divorce is a cultural norm. Immorality before and during marriage. The adult entertainment industry is thriving like never before. The accessibility to it is like never before. Millions of innocent children are being murdered in their mother's womb. Trafficking is a stark reality, especially depending on how much of a conspiracy theorist you are. Epstein didn't kill himself, right? Our schools are being indoctrinated with LGBTQ plus agendas. Drag shows are everywhere. Evil is considered normal and good. We pride ourselves in our sodomy. Abuse is prevalent. School shootings are rampant. Alcohol flows like a river. Drugs are ever-present. Lives are being ruined. We're not waiting for America to fall. She has already fallen. We're not hanging on to anything. It's gone. It needs saving. We've lost this great land to sin and wickedness. Read Romans 1. And we may as well exchange that for our Constitution. Because that's how we live. That's what we are. That's what we've become as a nation. We need some repentance. We need a turning away from wickedness in our land. God's hand of judgment has already come. It's not waiting. God's not staying his hand of judgment. It has already come. Turn to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You know the worst punishment God has is not fire falling from heaven. It's not some country coming in and taking away. It is him saying, have it your way. It's when God goes all Burger King on us and he just says, here you go. You want to sin? You want to live in your wickedness? Have it your way. Do what you want. I will let go. I will give you over. Multiple times that phrase is used in that passage. I will give them over. If you read that passage... We're not waiting for God's hand of judgment to come to America. It's already here in the form of God giving us over to these things. 
The worst punishment God gives is the allowance of our desires. We no longer are trying to save America from the inevitable. We are in the inevitable. What was being warned for years and decades that would come with all these things is here. It is here. We are living in it. The judgment of God is here on this land, and we are in the midst of it. And we think, oh, God, hopefully we want God to stay his hand of judgment. It is here. But wait. This passage isn't to America. This passage is to you and I. This passage is to God's people. I have a, kind of, quite, a, quite of a lengthy quote here. Almost every Bible conference, this is written in the early 1900s, I believe, but almost every Bible conference majors on today's church being like the Ephesian church. We are told that despite our sin and carnality, we are seated with him. Alas, what a lie! We are Ephesians, all right, but as the Ephesian church, Ephesian church in Revelation, we have left our first love. We appease sin, but do not oppose it. To such a cold, carnal, critical, care-cow church, this lax, loose, lustful, licentious age will never capitulate. Let us stop looking for scapegoats. The fault in declining morality, listen, the fault in declining morality is not radio or television. The whole blame for the present international de degeneration and corruption lies at the door of the church. This is not United States of America's fault. This is not the president's fault. This isn't Congress's fault. This isn't the House of Representatives' fault. This isn't the senator's fault. This isn't Governor Reynolds' fault. This isn't the Iowa State Senate's fault. This is the church's fault. What about the church? Where's the repentance in the church? Where's the recognition of sin in our lives as followers of Christ? We know we sin. We often commit the same sins. When did you last forsake a sin in your life? You say, Dylan, I've been saved a long time. You know, the things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. First John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We may deceive others. You may deceive me. I may deceive you. We deceive, and we're deceiving ourselves if we think that's the case. And the truth is not in us. Great verse, if we confess our sins. First John, speaking to Christian people, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. When did you last confess and repent of sin? Or do we just hang on to our sin? Do we try to cover it up? Try to rid it, rid it for a span? And then pick it back up again. Or do we not even look to become more like Christ? Do we even identify the sin in ourselves? Oh, it's so easy to look at the world, look at the United States, look at other countries and be like, it's so bad, God. Free us from this wickedness when we're chaining ourselves to it in our own lives. There's a, a kid I went to school with, and we would have um, PE, physical education, in junior high. And we'd go in the locker room, and we would get changed. And... Uh, we would sweat about as much as I'm sweating right now. As you probably can see on my bald head. I always thought, here, this is totally beside the point. I always thought it was cool, like these videos of Michael Jordan, you know, be close-ups and the beads of sweat coming down to seven. That's so cool. And then it happens to me, I'm like, it doesn't look near as cool. But anyways. <laughs> but this kid, we go, to the, we go to the shower room and the, the locker room, and we get out with PE, change clothes. And you know what this kid would do? Let's see where he's at. 
If you're in like fifth through ninth grade, you definitely know what this is. All right? Like that smell I sprayed in the store, and it's just, it brings back memories of the junior high locker room. Because it just smelled of Axe body spray. Here we go. This is the statement. Let's say, don't mask odor. Stop it. And so this young man, he was a rather large young man. He's just a big kid. And he would spray Axe on himself. Wouldn't take a shower. It was just Axe. He just cover up it. And so, if you're at a distance, you probably could smell it, as you may have smelled it on me later. But if you got close, you realize something wasn't quite right. Axe plus B.O. is not a great combination. B.O. plus anything is not really a great combination, but definitely Axe, it just, it just, it just, acute, it just goes with it in such a, a, a terrible way. And it smells bad. And so, unfortunately, this, uh, if he's probably, he might be watching tonight, probably not, but he might see there. But his locker was usually next to mine. And, um, and so he would cover up his stink with X. Now, <clears throat> to make the illustration more dramatic, well, here I have a nice cow pie, as they so call it, a real one. Now, I have, I, we got rid of our cow, so it is nice and dried out and hard, uh, because they come, they do definitely come out mushy. But this is, this is what we do to our sin. We spray some axe on it. You say, Dylan, I don't use axe. It's a bad illustration. All right, but we put cologne on it then, you know? And we hold it at a distance. We go to, we go to other people, and we get around them, not too close. But they smell cologne. They smell axe. It doesn't smell that bad. And we keep people at a distance try to keep God at a distance. Because from here, it doesn't smell that bad. It doesn't really smell that bad anyways because it's kind of old. But, but from here, we got our cologne on it. We got our suits on it. We got our ties on it. Is that time for me to be done? Sorry. <clears throat> we've, got our, we've got our version of the Bible that we prefer, and, and for a good reason, but that we look down on others. We put on all the, the Christian things on this. You know, you know who knows this is still here? God. And we can, we can lace it up any way we want it. We can slice it. We can mince it any way we like. And other people, all they smell is that. And once again, we don't let them close enough to, to infiltrate those things. If they are close enough, you know, they, they, they know. You know. It's whatever. They, they, they understand right, the carnality in our lives, maybe the sin in our life, but it's okay. Most people keep it a distance. Church people keep it a distance. We don't want them to realize that this, this sin the thing in our hearts that we're hiding that nobody sees, the things that are done in private, nobody else knows about maybe, we mask it really well. And honestly, we become professionals at it. And here we are, still with this in our life. And God, God knows this is there. When are we gonna turn away from this? When are we gonna forsake the sin in our lives? When are we going to stop masking it, just putting some cologne on it, putting some deodorizer on it? We're looking just to stop the odor, not get rid of it. God is more concerned about the sin of the people in this room than he is with the drag show that took, down, took place downtown Cedar Rapids on Mother's Day. God's wrath will be poured out on those people in a place called the Lake of Fire. It's already going to happen. What he's more concerned about is you and me. What sin are we keeping in our life? 
it should not surprise us that worldly people act worldly, that sinners act sinful. Some of the most wicked people in the Bible, though, were the so-called religious people. It's so much easier. It's so much easier when, when, when new Christians come for them to identify their sin, identify the things that need to take change in their life. This is easy, right? Old Christians, old Christians figure out very, or new Christians, rather, are easy for them to identify their sin, right? I, I shouldn't drink anymore. I shouldn't do drugs anymore. I should go to church more. I should maybe get married or stop, you know, fornicating. Easy things. I should stop doing this, stop doing Very easy to identify things. Us older Christians, we figured out how to, like, work those things in our mind, to justify them, to cover them up. And we don't see them as big of a deal. Well, I'm not a drunk. I'm not a fornicator. I'm not a this. I'm not like that. Old Christians figure out a way to condone their sin. New Christians quickly realize that adultery, fornication, drugs, drugs, drunk, drinking, and such the like are wrong. Old Christians split hairs and think, say things like, well, it's not gossip if it's true. Old Christians have gone years without responding to God and they quench the Holy Spirit. And it's, new Christians grow like weeds sometimes because they don't know any better. <laughs> they don't know any better than to do what, to do what God's convicting them to do because they love it. It's a new change in their life. Old things are passed away. New things become new. And it's fantastic. But as old Christians, we're used to it. It's gone down. And the Holy Spirit, we've quenched him enough now where we're just kind of used to doing that. That's our M.O. Where's the repentance in the church? I'm not talking for salvation. I'm talking for your relationship with God. Where's the identification, the confession and repentance, the forsaking of sin in our lives? We come to God with our manure. We spray it with all this stuff that we think is good things, good things. But we try to cover this up and make a, what's Jesus say? Whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Our nation's decline is on us. Not on the world, not on wicked people. Where have the followers of Christ been? Do you want to save America? Do you want America back? And we must pray. It has always been the answer. Humility, prayer, repentance. Become humble before an almighty God. And not scared, not pleased, but become boldly as a child of God, but humble. We pray, we fervently pray to God on behalf of our church, our family, of our nation. The poem goes like this, says, I love America, but I do not love what she has become. The scripture says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And America has forgotten its godly foundation on which she was built. Something, something is wrong. Our children are asked to attend public schools, which in many cases resemble war zones, without even the basic rights of any soldier, the right to pray publicly to the God of heaven. Many times the wild-eyed, drug-addicted teenager is allowed to stay in our public schools while the Supreme Court decided to expel God's Bible and prayer. This was read over 30 years ago, but now over 50 years ago. Something is wrong. Television, phones, tablets, social media daily bombards the senses of our nation with the idea that wrong is right. The abnormal, 
the abnormal, transgenderism, being a girl, if you're a boy, being a boy, if you're a girl, homosexuality is okay. The abnormal is what? Normal. And the abhorred is acceptable. And what God calls an abomination is what? Nothing more than alternative, alternative lifestyle. And it's had its effects. 50 years ago, the number one television program was the Andy Griffith Show. Look what we have today. Something is wrong when our government can endorse abortion in school without parental consent, and yet the Bible can no longer be passed out on campus. Something is wrong when our leaders can say to our children that immorality is right, all right as long as it's safe. Yes, something is wrong. Something is wrong, and I, for one, am ready for a change. I want to say to my government, we're not supposed to be raising dogs in our homes. We're supposed to be raising children created in the image and likeness of Almighty God and to teach them the Bible. If the Bible says it's right, it's right. If the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. The only hope America has is that godly men and godly women of prayer will stand together like one mighty army and declare to the immoral, obscene, impure, and foul, your days of unlimited access to the minds of America are over. The army of God that has been silent too long is taking America back. You love this country. You love this land. You love the freedoms we have that are quickly fading away, the only hope we have is to get on our knees before Almighty God, to come humbly and repent of our sins. Yes, to pray for the forgiveness of the sins of our nation, the sins of our people corporately, but to come before God and repent of our sins. Humbly, earnest, constant, continual, long time spent in prayer. And not just leaving the sin there, or rather taking it with us, but leaving it there and forsaking it. Let's pray together. What must we do to see revival in our church? We must humble ourselves. We must pray fervently. We must repent and forsake our sins. The invitation will play in just a moment, but the altar's open. There's something in your life you need to forsake. It's be a good time to do it. If you need to commit to prayer, if you need to come just humbly before God, it's be a good time to do it. Let's all stand together. The piano will play.